Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Viagra, a drug with infinite name recognition and touted benefits, is, as we know, pervasively advertised on television and the Internet. But what is the truth and what is the fiction about Viagra? These and questions about the medicalization of sexuality and the increasing expectation of sexual performance and pleasure that began with the release of Viagra are answered by Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, an associate clinical professor at Harvard Medical School and a practicing urologist in Boston, Massachusetts. He's the author of The Viagra Myth, The Surprising Impact on Love and Relationships and believes that erectile dysfunction drugs are reaching a critical point of misuse due to the mythology holding them out as a cure-all, an enhancer of sexual potency, and even as party favors by some. My conversation with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler begins with his comments about the changes brought about since the introduction of Viagra. You know, it's actually an amazing process that's happened, and Viagra has infiltrated our society uh, to such an extent in our culture that we, we've actually forgotten where we started from just uh, six years ago before it was ever introduced. You're right, it shows up on everybody's internet, it shows up uh, in the World Series in baseball games, it shows up in ads for the Super Bowl, it's everywhere. And the funny thing is that all sorts of guys who never had any problems, sexual or otherwise, of any sort, now think about taking it or actually have experimented with it. And our whole notions about what sexuality is about and what it all means to us, I think, has been changed by the appearance of medications like Viagra. What do you mean changed? What changes are we looking at? Well, you know, I think it happens on different levels and for different age groups and different situations. So as an example, um, you know, just to backtrack for one second, Viagra came out in response to a real medical condition called erectile dysfunction that affects 52% of men over the age of 40. I mean, it's a lot of guys now to various, you know, extents, but it was a real medical advance for men who had erection problems, which we call impotence. That part's, that part's real. Before we get too far away from that, we call them uh, erection problems. Uh, is that something different than natural aging in men? Well, natural, that's a great question. You know, I go crazy when I hear about natural aging. People say, why do we have to treat anything like with natural aging? Why can't we just age gracefully? Well, it used to be, you know, 500 years ago that our species didn't live past 45, so it wasn't a problem. Yeah, so why don't we all just commit suicide at age 45? That wouldn't be as much fun. No, it wouldn't be as much fun. And this idea of aging naturally is one of the craziest things I've ever heard of. You know what happens with age? I'll tell you what natural aging is. Natural aging is bad eyes, bad teeth, bad hearing, bad arteries, bad joints. It's all bad. Cancer is associated with aging. We treat all of these things so that we can live full, uh, uh, full lives. You know, if, if my, my father is now in his 80s, he needs hearing aids. What a crazy contraption that is. I have this metal in my mouth. They're called fillings for my teeth. These are normal things. If a guy who's 60 years old, always used to love playing tennis, can't play anymore because he's got bad arthritis in his hips, 
he gets a total hip replacement. We don't so think why is erectile dysfunction treated any differently? Exactly. So this notion that, Joe, you're 60 years old now, you know, so you can't have sex with the wife anymore. You know, just face it, you're old now. Or you're older, just make some adjustments. That's a crazy notion. We don't do that anywhere. But we are, as a culture, really messed up about sexuality. We think that we have this open sexuality notion. The only thing that's really liberal about sexuality in this country is the media that uses sex to sell everything left, right, and center. But as a culture, as a society, we're really very, very uptight about it. What brought about this change? Was it similar to the development of lenses and hearing aids, or was it a medical <laughs> discovery? You know what? I actually like I liken the the introduction of Viagra to the introduction of the birth control pill. In my opinion, the introduction of Viagra really created a second sexual revolution. The birth control pill created the first. The birth control pill came out around the same time as sort of feminism, women's lib, was coming about. It allowed women to really have control over contraceptive methods, control over their bodies. It was one part of a movement that changed sexuality uh, probably forever. Viagra comes out now, and it, is, it, it has changed not just behavior but attitudes in a bunch of different ways. Number one is it lets men who physically have been unable to have sex anymore to be able to regain that part of their lives, which is actually very important to a man, very important. We can say, women can say, listen, you know, why do you care so much? It doesn't matter why. <laughs> we, it just is important. It's just who we are. When you say it's important, um, is that from a physiological or psychological perspective? It's psychological. I'll give you an example. A guy comes in to see me in the office just last week. He's 50, I think he was 58. He's diabetic. He's got high blood pressure. He's got some heart disease. He actually had been amputated, had, had lost part of his leg because of vascular disease. And it comes in, he's got all these problems. And I said to him, how can I help you? He says, well, doctor, I lost my wife about a year ago. And in my mind, I'm still married to her. I'm not interested in meeting anybody new. But I haven't had an adequate erection in 10 years. And what I really want to know is, can I ever be a man again? And you said... And I said, yes, we have treatments for it. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that you can. That time wasn't the appropriate time for him. And I said, we're not going to do any tests. I'm not going to give you any treatment today. But when the time is right, yes, we can help you. And he walked out happy with the knowledge that his sense of his potential manhood could still be there for him. It's critical for how people think about themselves. In your book, The Viagra Myth, The Surprising Impact on Love and Relationships, you discuss that Viagra will not work for everyone. Well, that's true. You know, the title of my book, The Viagra Myth, doesn't focus only on the myth part. It's not just that things are false. I mean, Viagra is an effective medicine. It doesn't work for everybody, but it's effective. But the other meaning of the word myth, when you think back to Greek mythology, it was really about things, people, events that were larger than life. And I think that Viagra falls into that category. People have turned to Viagra as the hoped-for solution to a whole range of personal and relationship issues, which, of course, it can't help them with. It's a physiological drug as opposed to a psychoactive drug. Exactly. So Viagra helps men who have inadequate blood flow or inadequate blood vessel action within the penis, and that's the cause of their 
erection problems. But, you know, if a guy is struggling with his partner, oftentimes their sex life suffers as well. And what the guy or his partner may actually notice is that it's the sex life that's bad, and they may be less aware that there are other conflicts in their life. And some guys will come in the office and say, Doctor, can I have some of that Viagra? Say, well, I say, well, my wife and I are fighting like crazy. We don't have sex anymore, and I'm hoping this will be the spark for the relationship. Well, you can take all the Viagra in the world you want, but if the guy's not being nice to his partner, if she's angry at him for one reason or another, if he's alcoholic, um, you know, then it's not going to help. So what do you do? How do you determine whether Viagra will help or will not help? Well, sometimes you have to try it and see what's going on. But if the guy gives a story where, you know, he says, listen, doctor, over the last three years, the quality of my erections is getting worse and worse, and now I can't have sex with my wife anymore. I love her, otherwise everything is fine. Well, then it's very high probability this is a physical issue, and there's a good chance that Viagra is going to be a good choice for him. There now are two alternatives to Viagra, by the way. One's called Levitra, one is called Cialis. They all have, I think, fairly similar efficacy. They have some minor differences between them, but they all fall into the same category. Can you tell us about the difference between the new products like Cialis and Lavitra as they compare to Viagra? Uh, Sure. I think uh, Cialis is a very interesting product because it has a much longer time span that it works. Does it work any differently? No, they all work through the same mechanism on a, on a biochemical level. All three of them are similar kinds of drugs. And so the difference for Cialis is that it works for a much longer time. The advantage for that may be that a man can take the pill on a Friday evening and be set to have sex at some point, either Friday night or any time on Saturday and even possibly on part of Sunday. And so for some men, that takes them away from the feeling like they have to perform with a stopwatch in their head um, because Viagra is going to work for four to six hours. Um, and so it's usually just that evening if it's going to work at all. Is the cost about the same? Uh, they do cost about the same. Levitra has been promoted as a medication uh, that may work a little bit more quickly or be more powerful than Viagra. Those claims are not uh, supported by research. It's probably pretty similar uh, to Viagra. But I do think Levitra is a useful medication. It certainly is effective. There are a lot of people who have tried Viagra and have failed it over the five, six years that Viagra's been out. And I think Levitra is a perfect thing for them to try. If they failed one, they may actually do well with another. So describe the contraption that you use that would determine nocturnal erections and the time they last and their frequency. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, have, we do have tests that are pretty clever to try and figure out for a man if his erection, is, erection problem is likely to be physical or more psychological. And psychological, by the way, doesn't mean that the guy is nutty. It just means that he's getting anxious about sex, and the biggest sex organ in the body is the brain, and the brain has to be in gear, relaxed, excited, looking forward to it in order for the penis to respond. And so it turns out that, you know, one reason why men may have be having trouble is because they're nervous, because their brain is basically has what we call a fight-or-flight response, and it's turning off the sexual center. But those men do get erections at night. All men do, or at least the body tries to, and they happen in association with dreams. And so we have a very clever device. I'm not responsible for it. We just use it. Um, where the man goes to sleep at home, and he puts this little band on the penis. It's like a little uh, continuous monitoring blood pressure cuff. 
When he wakes up in the morning, he removes it. And when he brings the device back to us, we get a computer printout of how firm and for how long the penis got erect. And if a man is having great rigidity at night with dreams, but he's having trouble having sex with his partner, it's likely that the problem is psychological. If, on the other hand, we usually do it for two nights, if, on the other hand, after two nights, the man has not had one really firm, decent erection, then it's likely that the problem is physical. Does Viagra work under both conditions? It does, actually. Viagra's pretty good. You know, some people have had resistance to the idea of using Viagra for men who may have the anxiety-type stuff. But it's actually a great little uh, jump start for the engine, if you will. Uh, sometimes guys get into this negative cycle where, you know, the erection failed for them, and then the next time they're just worried. You know, they're busy thinking, is my, is my penis going to work? Is it going to stay hard? Should I be putting it in now? Am I, do I have to hurry? Is it ever going to work? And just thinking that way makes it worse. And uh, if a guy's failed once and then he fails a second time, well, then he's really behind the eight ball and he's in trouble. And Viagra can get everything working again so that the man is looking forward to sex. And once he looks forward to it, he feels sexual and turned on and excited and his own erections will be okay. And probably he can stop using Viagra pretty quick. Does Viagra affect uh, orgasms or multiple orgasms in men? Uh, you know, there, there are stories out there how guys and even women have taken Viagra and they say, wow, these were the best orgasms of my life. Unbelievable. But as far as we can tell on a physical basis, Viagra does nothing for sexual arousal, for excitement, for actual feeling in the penis, or for orgasm. One thing that's interesting, though, you know, the question is, why do healthy men without any erection problems take it or are interested in it? And it turns out that one beneficial effect of testosterone is that for many men, it can shorten the time until he can have sex again. In other words, he gets a second erection more quickly. From Viagra as opposed to testosterone. Right. Viagra and testosterone are quite... They're really substantially different. different. Yeah, di they have different actions. On this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, who is an associate clinical professor at Harvard Medical School and the director of Men's Health, Boston. He's the author of a recent book called The Viagra Myth, The Surprising Impact on Love and Relationships. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dr. Morgenthaler, do you think there's an association between the rhythm of the words Viagra and vagina? <laughs> um, no, I don't. But it's funny that you bring it up. You know, I actually think the, I mean, the word Viagra is a great word. I think the connotation actually is really with the word Niagara, like Niagara Falls. That's what it sounds like to me, this sort of rushing torrent of fluid and powerful and uh, vital and alive. I think that's where it comes from. You know the story of how Viagra was discovered? Explain it. It's fantastic. You know, Pfizer is the company that makes Viagra, and they had no idea, actually, that it would have anything to do with sex. What they thought is that it was a compound because of how it worked that they thought would work on blood vessels, and that might be good for the heart. So they had a research trial in men who had some heart disease, and they gave them the medicine. It didn't have the name Viagra then. It's generic. It's called sildenafil. And at the end of the study, it's always routine to get the pills back from, the unused pills back from the patients in the trials 
so that you can see whether they've taken all the doses they're supposed to take and things like that. And they had an impossible time getting the men to return their pills. And it was only when they asked them why that they discovered that some of these men were able to have sex for the first time in years. And it was that way that they discovered the sexual benefits of this new medication, sildenafil, which then got called Viagra. Earlier we were talking about Viagra being um, the second sexual revolution after the birth control pill. Right. And you have some observations on the work that Eve Ensler is doing with the vagina monologues. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, I, I think that it's been an amazing time over the last 20, 30 years as women have very ably been able to articulate uh, various aspects of their own health, their sexual health, their need and desire, legitimate need to, for equal pay, equal protection under the laws. And feminism, I think, has really informed much of our social dialogue over the last 20, 30 years. I have two daughters, and I absolutely want them to have every opportunity uh, that men have in their lives. At the same time, the thing that I think has been missing from our social dialogue over the last 20 years has been the effect of feminism on men. On men. And I think that we have this notion, I think based on a feminist perspective, that men are absolute idiots. That men don't have any intelligence about relationships. That you know we, we don't have an ability to talk about our feelings. And I think that the thing that's been missing for men is really an ability for us to say, this is who we are, and we're very good at certain things, and stop trying to make us men into pseudo-women. So how is that manifested in society? Well, let me give you an example. You know, we take it for granted now that men come home at night after they've been working, and their partners often work too, and that we split all the chores 50-50. So a lot of guys now do um, cooking. There's nothing wrong with that. Some men enjoy cooking. But when you think back, none of us who are about 30 and older have ever had any role models with our fathers doing that cooking. The only cooking that most of our fathers did was with some dead animal that was on the grill with fire. We have never been in this place before where we have equal opportunity under the law and division of labor uh, within the family, and a loss of specialized roles. Now, this isn't to say that, that I'm advocating that we go back to women being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, not at all. But at the same time, there's something that's been missing for men and I think also for women. And it's this notion that equality between the sexes means that men and women are identical. We're not identical. We have different things that make us feel good. We have different movers, different things that inspire us and make us happy. One thing that's been lost, I think, is sort of a generosity of spirit from women towards men, acceptance of men for who we are, uh, admiration for the kinds of qualities that we do have, appreciation for things like, for instance, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, a higher sex drive. We have this attitude like, Joe, why do men need to have sex so much? Like, this is something that needs to be drummed out of us. We need to be socialized. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. You spoke earlier about the need for a higher sex drive to be psychological. Is that also culturally driven from your perspective? I don't think so. If you look at desire rates for men and for women, there is a difference. Now, there's a huge variation 
so that you know there's some women who have, within relationships who have a much higher sex drive than men do. But if you look on average, on average, men want to have sex more frequently than women do. And sex is different for us. You know, it's, it's, it, it is different. Can you describe that difference based on your experience as a urologist, having examined many men and discussed their intimate stories of sexual relationships? Sure, not just men, but also their partners are in the room too, you know, too often. You know, one of the best ways to describe it is this. There's a, a cartoon going around on the Internet that's very funny. And it's entitled 20 Erogenous Zones for Men and for Women. And for women, you see a stick drawing of a woman, and there are these 20 labels that go all over her body, some of the obvious you know, places to the genital regions, but also you know, like the earlobes and the back of the neck and the back of the wrist and things like this. And for the men, there's a stick drawing of a man, and there also are 20 labels, but all 20 labels point to his penis. Those are his 20 erogenous zones right down there. Men are fixated on that one part of their body around sexuality. I think that for women, it's the whole context of sexuality that's important to them. What's the mood going into the bedroom? Is, he being, is the man being attentive to her? Is he making eye contact? Is he being sweet? Is he being tender and affectionate? What are the sounds and the smells and the whole situation? That's all important, I think, for women. And for men, the focus, by and large is really on the act itself. Men are very focused on their penis. The reason that ads for Viagra and now the new competitors come up and can be so effective for men is it's all about these notions of power and performance. And like it or not, men are focused that way. And in order for men to really get along well with women and for women to really get along well with men, I think everything is heightened if we appreciate what those differences are between us. We are not the same. How are those differences then identified in relationships? I think that there are some simple things where men can spark their relationships with their wives or their girlfriends, and I think there's some really simple tips for women with men. And I'll tell you, the number one thing I wish that we saw more of from women to men, and it's this. Number one is recognizing that men want to be appreciated and admired. And we've gotten to a place, I believe, in many, many relationships where the woman is uncomfortable ever saying words like, you are a great provider for our family. It's amazing what you do with your work. You are a fabulous lover. I love the way you touch me. We don't hear those generous comments very much. If you ever want your man to feel like he is king of the world for a little while, you tell him that he's an amazing lover. Now, you may not love every aspect of his lovemaking or about how he is in this world, but that's not the point. You find something that you really do appreciate or admire in him, and you let him know. We have this idea that guys are these loutish brutes who care only about themselves. In fact, at least in the last 20 years, I think most men, whether they show it or not, actually want to be pleasers. They want their partner to like them, to think well of them, to admire them. That's what they want. That's why guys go into burning buildings to be heroes. We do that. Now, what does a guy need to do to make his partner, his female partner, feel great is I think he has to understand, he has to understand that that issue about the context of sexuality is really important. 
have a colleague at NYU Medical Center, Andy McCullough, has a great line, which is if a guy really wants to get lucky sexually, maybe the best thing he can do is take out the garbage before he's even asked to. In other words, the idea of going beyond what's expected, getting away from uh, sort of the the usual friction that happens in relationships of, I thought I asked you to do this, the sort of the harping on the negative uh, on both sides really gets away from our ability to be great with each other. And finally, what brought you to this kind of work? What you drew know, your interest? You know, I, I, I just love it. I started off in college doing work around hormones and sexual behavior in lizards, actually. And then I went through my training in medicine and in surgery and urology. And what I've come back to, again, is the sexuality and the behavior. I love the dance. I love the sexual and the social dance that happens around relationships and sexuality. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, there are social pressures that lead us down certain paths. And sometimes we don't think about it too much and we get into a tough place with who we are and who we should be. And I think there's a lot of room for us to live fuller lives, more exciting lives, and to be better people and more generous partners. And so I like talking about this stuff and seeing if I can make it happen. Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, <laughs> you know, actually, right now I'm reading a book by Dr. Terence Rial, who's a family therapist. The name of the book is Why Can't I Get Through to You? And he actually addresses some of the things I've been talking to you about, for instance, conflicts within marriages, uh, where the woman is unhappy with her husband, is one example, and where what the man really wants is for his wife to be less unhappy with him. I think this is a very common situation. The place where I would take issue with Dr. Rael's uh, approach is that what he's arguing in the book is that men aren't very good, because we haven't been trained at it, to deal with relationships. And so his emphasis is on getting guys to be a little bit more savvy about how to do that. I actually take a different tack, as I've mentioned, which is that I think that, that what's missing is a lack of appreciation of who guys really are. The idea that we're going to change or that we should change, I don't think is right. There's a famous New Yorker comic and it's these two couples that you know, looks like a fancy cocktail party. And one woman says to the other, she says, I l just love what you've done with him. Well, I don't think that men need to be done with. I think we're actually pretty wonderful as we are, but we're not women. We're guys. And we have certain qualities, some of which may be great, some of which may be less ideal for partners, but it's who we are. And we need to celebrate those differences between men and women instead of putting us down one or the other. Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, thanks very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Pleasure talking with you. Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler is the author of The Viagra Myth, The Surprising Impact on Love and Relationships. The book he recommends is Why Can't I Get Through to You? by Terence Real. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. 
We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.